Remember when a mint company had to denounce a candidate for president? Remember that? The company was Tic Tac. And in October 2016, they released this statement. Tic Tac respects all women. We find the recent statements and behavior completely inappropriate and unacceptable. Tic Tac was referencing a newly unearthed tape from 2005 where you could hear 2016 presidential candidate Donald Trump describing his own vulgarity. I better use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. By this point, you know how that statement ends, with the suggestion that it is okay to grab women by their genitals against their will. When you're a star, they let you do it. A couple days after that tape was released, Trump defended his remarks in a debate against Hillary Clinton. You describe kissing women without consent, grabbing their genitals. That is sexual assault. You brag that you have sexually assaulted women. Do you understand that? No, I didn't say that at all. I don't think you understood what was said. This was locker room talk. Uh, I'm not proud of it. I apologize to my family. I apologize to the American people. Certainly, I'm not proud of it. But this is locker room talk. It's locker room talk, and it's one of those things. Locker room talk, just one of those things. Boys will be boys, boys who brag about sexually assaulting women. After that tape was released, more than a dozen women came forward accusing Trump of sexual assault and harassment. This is how Trump responded. Every woman lied when they came forward to hurt my campaign. All of these liars will be sued after the election is over. If they can fight somebody like me, who has unlimited resources to fight back, just look at what they can do to you. Trump became sort of a hood ornament for male entitlement. He sent his wife Melania out on a media circuit to defend him. She claimed that women approach Trump with inappropriate stuff all the time. And, and didn't they know he has a wife? How dare they? Amazingly, shockingly, none of this stuck to Trump. He used his money and his resources to deny the accusations, to sweep them under the rug, to move along. And he used his bully pulpit to warn other men, hey, guys, this could happen to you, too. If I go down for this, they will come after you, too. And apparently this all worked. He won the presidential election. But today, nearly seven years later, we are seeing something that approaches accountability begin to emerge in a Manhattan courtroom. A jury heard opening arguments today in the civil lawsuit that writer E. Jean Carroll brought against Trump for allegedly raping her in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room in the 1990s. Ms. Carroll is seeking damages for alleged battery and for defamation. And that is because in 2019, when Carroll published accusations that Trump attacked her, he followed that 2016 playbook. He called her a liar. It's a total false accusation and... I don't know anything about her. And she's made this charge against others. And you know, people have to be careful because they're playing with very dangerous territory. In a 2019 interview with The Hill, Trump said it never happened. And anyway, she wasn't his type. He then repeated his denials just this past fall after E. Jean Carroll filed her lawsuit. This 
Miss Bergdorf Goodman case is a complete con job. It's a hoax and a lie. This woman is not my type. That most recent denial, which he made after he left office, that is the subject of the defamation part of this case. Now, last month, the judge overseeing that case ruled that that infamous Access Hollywood tape could be used as evidence in Miss Carroll's case, along with the testimony of two other women who have accused Donald Trump of sexual assault. In their opening statement yesterday, Carroll's attorneys pointed the jury to Trump's Access Hollywood remarks, the ones about getting away with sexual assault, and they said it is exactly what he did to Miss Carroll. When Miss Carroll took the stand today, she said that Donald Trump's alleged assault left her unable to ever have a romantic life again. And the short answer is because Donald Trump raped me. As for the impact this has all had on her life, Carroll said Trump's remarks shattered my reputation and I'm here to try and get my life back. So that is what happened allegedly to E. Jean Carroll. But the impact of that language, of that defense, that she wasn't his type, the ripple effect of that locker room talk, that all extends way beyond the walls of a Manhattan courtroom. Because if Trump became an avatar of male entitlement in the eyes of women, he seems to have become that for men as well. In 2016, when Trump told the public, if they can fight somebody like me, just look at what they can do to you, some men heard that as an actual warning. When he used the term locker room talk, they heard him. They were listening. And now some of Trump's staunchest followers are repeating him. Last night, it was Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the far-right Western chauvinist group, the Proud Boys, who, along with four of his colleagues, is on trial for seditious conspiracy for his actions on and before January 6th. Tarrio parroted Donald Trump in a Twitter forum complaining about the federal prosecutors in his trial. What we're trying to do is manipulate how we talk to each other in the locker room. And it's not fair. It, it, it really isn't. It's all just locker room talk. Where have you heard that before? This culture of debasement and violence, that seems to be the halo effect of the Trump years. And if you want yet another example of it, look no further than the freshly fired Fox News host, Tucker Carlson. Tonight, the New York Times has new details about what led to the network's network's breakup with Carlson. According to the Times, the Fox board of directors found more embarrassing private text messages and videos unearthed as part of discovery in the Dominion voting systems case. Dominion lawyers plan to pin Tucker Carlson down on the messages that were most demeaning toward women, including ones that referred to women, both guests and executives, using the C word. The Times also obtained a video of Carlson off camera discussing his, quote, postmenopausal fans and whether they would approve of how he looked on air. In another video, Carlson is overheard describing a woman he finds yummy. That kind of locker room talk posed a threat to Fox News. Joining me now is Deborah Turkheimer, current professor of law at Northwestern University, who served as an assistant DA in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. She is also the author of Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. And I'm also pleased to be joined by Katie Fang, MSNBC legal contributor and host of The Katie Fang Show. Thank you, ladies, both for being here tonight. Um, Deborah, I'll start with you. You have a really powerful op-ed in The Times uh, sort of that has published in conjunction with the beginning of the E. Jean Carroll case, in which you write, the outcome of this case takes on heightened significance because Mr. Trump has embraced the role of avenger 
on behalf of men accused of sexual misconduct. I would argue he has taken on the role of avenger for many kind of men with grievances that span run the gamut. But when you see the way in which Trump followers, Trump acolytes, Trump media buddies echo the demeaning, misogynist language, it really it it really underscores the point of how important Trump is and was to this sort of entire anti-woman movement, if you would. I think that's absolutely right. This trial is capturing a moment in time where it feels like so much is on the line for our culture. Yes, we've had the Me Too movement that has flourished since the hashtag went viral, since it began in 2006, but we still haven't really pinned powerful men with consequences for abuse. And uh, along with that impunity comes, as you say, debasement and humiliation and a sense that um, men with privilege, men with fame, men with fortune can get away with just about anything. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it was almost surprising the news that broke just, you know, moments ago uh, about Tucker Carlson and potentially why he was fired. So explicitly linked to the language used about for women in his own organization that was so vulgar and crude that it really isn't even being printed in any of the papers that are reporting on this, right? It's almost surprising from a woman's vantage point that anyone and any powerful man would actually be held accountable on that front. That's right. And I think for many people watching this trial, it really is shocking to even contemplate that E. Jean Carroll might be believed and that her accusation may actually amount to some kind of accountability for Donald Trump. Uh, Katie, let's talk about the trial a little bit, because this is a civil uh, trial, which is different than a criminal trial. And I wonder what you make of the defense Trump's team is mounting, which is not exactly the same defense that Trump himself is mounting on social media. Well, it's a familiar defense, though, isn't it, Alex, whether it's a civil case or a criminal case when there's an allegation of sexual assault. The old tired trope about a rape victim is that she didn't do something. And that is the defense that is being mounted by counsel for Donald Trump in this civil rape and defamation case. She didn't scream. She didn't go to the police. She didn't report it immediately. She didn't pursue charges immediately. Those are things that we hear even in criminal cases. As a former prosecutor who prosecuted sexual battery, rape, sexual assault cases, that's always the questions that were being raised. Those are things that you had to dispel during the jury selection process to ensure that you had a fair and impartial jury to be able to sit in judgment. But Alex, that's not a requirement to prove. Given it's a lower burden of proof than a civil case, regardless of whether or not it's a civil or criminal, there is no requirement that a rape victim scream. There's no requirement that she or even he, right, have to report it immediately to the police. There is no one size fits all response to the crime or the offense of rape. And because of that, I think what you're seeing here is Donald Trump on one front on Truth Social trying to do what Donald Trump does, which is avoid having to actually show up in court. He's trying to use a different platform to kind of launch a defense. And then he has his legal team in court trying to go after E. Jean Carroll and her legal team. And so at the end of the day, you're not going to see Donald Trump come to court and Whether or not he's that's enough to kind of 
uh, you know, dupe a jury into thinking that that was sufficient for him to not show up, to not actually have to defend himself in his own words and on his own terms. I guess that'll be left to be seen. I wonder, Deborah, um, you know, to Katie's point about what the sort of cost is to Trump, let, if he, for if he is found guilty in this civil case, you will literally have the words convicted rapist and current presidential candidate, former president Donald Trump. But the reality is he's not going to go to jail for this. And I wonder for the women who have been victims of violence themselves, whether how they square that idea that you can be a convicted rapist who doesn't have to serve jail time and that you can feasibly run to be the Republican nominee for the highest office in the land. Right. It's such an interesting point. He'll be held liable if you're assuming that the jury comes back with a There'll be a monetary penalty. For Eugene Carroll. That's right. There will be no criminal sanction whatsoever. And then one question will be, what, if any, political consequence does he suffer from that? But another question will be, what does that mean for the many survivors who are watching? And what does that mean for the narrative of accountability, right? I mean, is there, is, can you call it accountability if someone is, is paying and has the reputation harm, but the harm is not uh, sizable enough to prevent him from running for president. I've been using the term a measure of accountability because civil justice is a a form of justice and it's certainly legal accountability, which we have not seen with respect to any of these allegations against Trump to this point. So, you know, for many watching, it would feel like progress. And yet, of course, it's different from a criminal prosecution. And and many will wonder, you know, why that's all the consequence he's going to suffer. I think for E. Jean Carroll, if the jury believes her, that will be hugely meaningful for so many women who come forward with accusations. And most don't. They're not believed. And so it, it, it is a significant moment, um, even if the sanction here, as, as you point out, is a civil sanction. Yeah. And if it's perhaps just one victim that gets her day in court, perhaps that's I mean, when we talk about accountability, it exists at different scales. Katie, does it surprise you to hear Enrique Tario, who's on trial uh, for t- seditious conspiracy in federal trial, literally echoing the words of Donald Trump, this is all just locker room talk. And what do you make legally of that defense? Well, it's not a legal defense, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's not a legally cognizable defense for Enrique Tario. So it's also not a legally cognizable defense for Donald Trump to the offenses that he's currently facing. I'm not surprised, though, Alex, because Enrique Tarios looks at somebody like Donald Trump as being an idol. He wants to mimic. He wants to be that man. He says that he was heralding the call of Donald Trump on January 6th to have, you know, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers show up for that insurrection. But it's not a real defense. And it's just one way to stoke public public opinion in his favor. But remember, there's a jury that's already seated for Tarios. There's a jury that's already seated for Donald Trump. These are jurors that are sitting in judgment that ostensibly have been truthful when they've said that they can put aside their biases, their sympathies and their prejudices and be able to listen to the facts and the law and decide a case appropriately. You know, in this particular instance, though, Alex, putting aside the Enrique Tarrios kind of situation, when you have a sexual assault, sexual battery case, even Judge Kaplan, Eugene Carroll's judge in this case, said this is a quote. He said, she said 
And yet we all know the realities, you know, rape and sexual assault. These are the types of offenses where from the get go, the victim faces continued re-victimization over and over again, because it's never really a he said, she said. It's a he said, she said, and who can she bring to corroborate? It's a he said, she said, and what's the evidence that she has from the get-go? It's always what can you prove as the victim versus being recognized as the victim. And so in this particular case for Aging Carol, if she prevails, that's good for her. But we also need to kind of take a breath and realize this is E. Jean Carroll's case. This is not the case for all other rape victims in America. It's just her case. And that is why it's also important that Judge Kaplan has also allowed other victims of Mm -hmm. similar situated sexual assaults from Donald Trump to come in in this particular case. Yes, it's he said, she said, she said, she said, she said. Mm -hmm. Deborah Turkheimer, Katie Fang, thank you both for joining me. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you so much. We have a lot to get to this evening, including Donald Trump trying to get House Republicans to meddle in yet another investigation focused on Donald Trump. And then there is House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who managed to unite his Republican caucus today around his party's really very extreme wish list with the added bonus of holding the global economy hostage. We will have more on that coming up next. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. For months, this country has been watching a slow rolling hostage situation. Republicans in Congress have been holding the American economy hostage by threatening to drive the country into default. And today, those Republicans finally announced the ransom. Earlier this evening, House Republicans voted 217 to 215, which is a squeaker, to approve a plan to increase the debt ceiling in exchange for dramatic cuts to America's social safety net and its safety infrastructure. This came after a few days of very tense negotiations among Republicans and only Republicans to see if the party could even agree on what it actually wanted. Concessions were made and deals were brokered. But in the end, three Republicans voted against the measure, saying it did not go far enough. A fourth Republican, Congressman Tim Burchett, also voted against the bill because he apparently doesn't believe in ever raising the debt ceiling which is apparently a legitimate position to have in today's GOP. Anyway, as for all the other House Republicans today, they voted for a bill that would end 
critical food assistance for anywhere between 275,000 to 900,000 people, according to expert estimates. They voted to kick 600,000 Americans off of Medicaid and to significantly increase health care costs for state governments. That is according to the Congressional Budget Office. The bill would also result, according to one estimate, in 780,000 fewer jobs over the next 10 years. It would have cut 80,000 jobs from the VA health system. And the Department of Veterans Affairs estimates that, in turn, that would result in 30 million fewer patient visits per year for American veterans. Republicans voted to cut off affordable housing assistance for more than one million families. They voted to cut Pell Grants and block President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. They voted to cut early childhood education programs, to cut green energy tax credits. And the the plan passed by House Republicans would reduce the number of rail safety inspections by 7,500 and shut down 375 air traffic towers around the country. So the same party that claimed to be outraged by that East Palestine rail disaster that criticized Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg for his handling of major flight delays, that same party just voted to make air travel harder and to make railways less safe. Republicans just put themselves on record supporting all of that because this is their wish list. This is the stuff they want in exchange for not tanking the global economy. During the debate over the bill on the House floor, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, Democrat of Minnesota, she had this to say. For a long time, Republicans spent so much time saying they were going to address the economic anxiety families were feeling. But overnight, they dreamt up a dangerous economic bill that will blunge families into economic depression. Joining us now is Minnesota Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Congresswoman, it's it's great to see you. I'm sorry it's always often under gloomy circumstances. Let me just ask you, are you surprised that Kevin McCarthy was actually able to pass a bill with members of his own caucus? Because the bar is really that low at this point. I'm glad to be uh, with you, uh, Alex. And today, obviously, is a a dark day when we got to see just how dangerous uh, the Republican agenda could be and and the kind of uh, economically devastating bill that they can coalesce around. I wasn't surprised because I knew that ultimately as a car, you know, uh, salesman, that he would make some sort of concession. And we saw that um, up to the last minute as he was begging uh, for those votes. And, you know, there were reports saying that he was telling his members, uh, don't worry about the substance of the bill, just vote for it so that we can say uh, we have done something. Uh, And it's really, uh, you know, disturbing the amount of economic damage that they are willing to inflict on America's poor and working families, our veterans, our seniors, our children, basically every single person in this country uh, that they have promised that they were going to alleviate the economic anxieties that they were experiencing, they have now um, put out a bill that would actually create a lot of economic, um, (laughs) a lot more economic anxiety. And and as I said earlier, just economic depression for so many people. You know, it is really hard to understand the logic oftentimes in Republican circles. But on this one in particular, Reuters is is reporting that the cuts these Republicans are talking about would be felt more acutely 
in red states. Literally, uh, an analysis of federal spending data indicates that the domestic spending caps could be felt most acutely in the states that backed Trump in the 2020 presidential election. Do you think Republicans know that or they just don't care? They don't care. Uh, they have been doing, um, you know, they've been advocating for a lot of policies that uh, transfer wealth um, and economic stability and security for poor and working families to millionaires and billionaires. You don't see Republicans being outraged about the corporate tax cuts that uh, Trump and push Bush uh, put forth and implemented. You don't see them being worried about many of these red states where, you know, they are last on uh, uh, the level of education their children are getting. They are last on the level of employment that people are receiving. They are last on all of the resources uh, that should be available to any community that lives in a thriving society like we do here in the United States. Uh, and so many people are convinced by their lies because what the Republicans have done is um, tell one story uh, and implement uh, policies that tell the opposite of that story. And to me, the thing that is the most frustrating is how is it that so many people continue to believe in the promises that Republicans make on what they will do, knowing that the policies that they implement are hurting them every single day? Yeah, the discrepancy between the narrative and the action isn't a, a discrepancy is the wrong word to use. It's like a chasm between the, what the, the narrative that the party is proposing and the actions they take when they're in power. But I guess I wonder in the, in the broader context of the negotiations that the White House is going to have to do with this Republican conference. I mean, how do you think Biden and Democrats should play their hand in terms of negotiating with people who seem incredibly willing to take the country off a cliff unless, you know, Democrats accede to a wish list of draconian cuts to hurt the most vulnerable and marginalized in our society? The thing that Democrats and the administration, uh, President Biden, have to do is hold on to, 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 to this idea that we must raise the debt limit without negotiations because this has happened over and over again. We did not see McCarthy out there uh, pushing for cuts in negotiations uh, when he voted to raise the debt ceiling under Trump. The reality is these are bills that we that we have to pay. Um, we already spend this money. We have that responsibility as members of Congress and as leaders in this country. We can have all kinds of budget conversations when we are negotiating the actual budget. Um, you know, it's clear that there are that they have obviously take are, are promising to take the country hostage and our economy and the world economy and the global economy. Uh, but we do not have to negotiate under their terms. We have to negotiate under the facts of how this country has been governed uh, and the policies that we know work to keep us fiscally responsible in this country. President Biden's going to be leading those negotiations. He is also, as we know, running for president again. Are you, are progressives excited about that? 
I mean, the, the, the reality is, you know, in the last two years under the slimmest majority in the House and in the Senate, we've been able to do incredible things by passing uh, bills like the CHIPS Act or the Infrastructure Bill or the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, the president was in my district celebrating some of that work earlier this month. Um, he has been a, a, a real partner in listening to us when we've said we need movement in regards to addressing the, the climate crisis. We need movement uh, in addressing uh, student debt cancellation. And I think it is really important for us to support him for re-election. Re we are at this moment dealing with fascism. In this moment, we are dealing with people who don't actually believe democracy is good. We are dealing with people who are proposing the kind of economically devastating and dangerous bill that we just talked about. I don't think we have um, the the opportunity to to have the kind of conversations that people want to have. This is a very dangerous moment for our country, and the president that's leading us has done a great job, and we need to coalesce behind him. It sounds like enthusiasm to me, Minnesota Democratic Congresswoman <laughs> Ilhan Omar. It's always good to see you. Thank you for your time tonight. Of course. Thank you for having me. We have still more to come this evening. Disney is now suing Governor Ron DeSantis because that is apparently where we're at in this endless war on woke. And another Florida man is trying to use his allies in Congress to help him out of a legal jam. That is next. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas, why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. This is, uh, you know, the federal uh, legislative branch, uh, you know, trying to uh, intervene in an individual uh, ongoing criminal prosecution. Uh, and so you know, that's something that I think is uh, a, 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 a proposition that is anathema uh, to, to government principles of comedy, uh, uh, sovereignty and federalism uh, and, and it's something that we cannot uh, countenance. That was Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg tonight, reacting to a question about House Republicans' efforts to meddle in his criminal investigation into Donald Trump. If you recall, House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan is dragging in a former member of Bragg's investigative team to talk to Jordan's committee in a fairly transparent attempt to glean information about the DA's criminal case against Trump. Now, not surprisingly, D.A. Bragg's office is trying to convince the judge overseeing that case to keep all evidence under wraps even from the former president. Just last night, Bragg's prosecutors requested a protective order, which asks that 
Trump, a former president, be barred from seeing certain material during the discovery process without his lawyers present, and that Trump be prohibited from posting details on any of it on news or social social media platforms. Former president. Prosecutors mentioned Trump's tendency to go after anyone investigate him, investigating him, noting that he has already attacked several people linked to this case, including D.A. Bragg and the judge himself. They also argued that the current federal investigation into Trump's handling of classified materials down at Mar-a-Lago, quote, gives rise to significant concern that defendant will similarly misuse grand jury and other sensitive materials here. And what do you know? Today, Trump's lawyers are asking House Republicans to intervene in that very same investigation. Today, Trump's lawyers sent this 10-page letter to the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee, essentially asking him to step in and prevent DOJ from continuing to conduct ham-handed criminal investigations of matters that are inherently not criminal. The solution to these issues is not a misguided, politically infected, and severely botched criminal investigation, but rather a legislative solution. DOJ should be ordered to stand down. DOJ should just stand down. Let let Congress take care of it. By the way, House Republican friends, can you help us with that? Meanwhile, Trump's lawyers also revealed that among the classified documents taken from the White House were briefings for phone calls with foreign leaders. And that adds to what we already knew in this case, that these documents contain secrets about an unnamed country's nuclear capabilities, as well as highly sensitive intelligence about China and Iran. So Trump's lawyers are hoping that Republicans will, if they might, slow down the Mar-a-Lago investigation But two of Trump's top lawyers, Boris Epstein and Evan Corcoran, they have now spoken to special counsel prosecutors and they have appeared before the grand jury. And prosecutors are reportedly asking grand jury witnesses a series of questions about whether Trump showed off sensitive maps with classified information to his visitors at Mar-a-Lago, all of which would seem to indicate that special counsel Jack Smith is not slowing down anytime soon. Coming up tonight, Montana's governor signed a bill to prevent, quote unquote, woke banks from discriminating against gun manufacturers. And that isn't even the biggest anti-woke Republican power move of the day. The biggest one is coming up next. This bill is going to hurt kids, and that's why I'm asking Disney to please take a position on the don't say gay bill. Say that it's wrong and say that you're going to stop donating to the politicians that vote for it. Okay, so last year, company employees and members of the public pressured the Walt Disney Company to take a public stance against Ron DeSantis's so-called Don't Say Gay law. That's a law that bans the discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity in schools. And that pressure campaign worked. Disney vowed to work to repeal the law, and it put out a statement that formally said DeSantis should not have signed it, which clearly angered the governor, as in really, really angered the governor. For Disney to come out and put a statement and say that the bill should have never passed and that they are going to actively work to repeal it, I think one was fundamentally dishonest, but two, I think that crossed the line. And, um, you know, we're going to make sure we're fighting back when people are threatening our parents and threatening our kids. 
Disney alleges in a lawsuit filed today that since it spoke out about Don't Say Gay, Governor DeSantis has engaged in a, quote, targeted campaign of government retaliation against the company. That includes threatening to use his power as governor to impose tolls on the Florida roads that lead to Disney's theme parks. It includes raising the taxes on Disney hotels and even threatening to build a state prison next door. Now, a lot of this is complicated because Disney does have an absolutely wild amount of privileges in the state of Florida, ones that date back to when Walt Disney developed the property in the 1960s. But that is a story for another day. What is new here is not Disney's weird self-governing state inside another state, and it is not employees in the public pushing corporations to take a stand for what they believe is right or not right. Take, for example, the current outrage on the right over the Bud Light campaign featuring a transgender influencer in a sponsored post. Sales of Bud Light dropped 17 percent compared to this time last year, and that is almost definitely because conservatives are boycotting Bud Light. So whether or not we agree with their stance here, consumers do have the right to use their pa- the power of their pocketbooks. And again, all of that is not new. What is new here is the government punishing a corporation for basically listening to its consumers and expressing itself politically, in this case, expressing itself as politically progressive. Now, put a pin in that one because it comes up again. Yesterday, a Republican bill became law in the state of Kansas, and it bars public officials from using environmental, social and governance factors in investing in public funds. In simpler Although more ridiculous terms, that means no woke climate or diversity goals are allowed to be used when making investment decisions. Indiana's Republican-controlled legislature passed a similar law on Monday, and Montana's governor signed one into law tonight. So now at least nine states are controlling the way investments are made and making sure they do not align with any progressive goals. Which is distressing because in our current era— With a political stalemate that's preventing nearly anything from happening in Washington and with more and more Republicans at the state level turning to anti-democratic, undemocratic means, activists have turned more of their attention toward corporate America. It's literally one of the last remaining levers for citizens to pull in order to gain political agency and maybe actual change itself. And now the government is going to war over this. So what happens now? Joining us now is Rashad Robinson, the president of the activist group Color of Change, which specializes in using public pressure to push corporate America to push for progressive social change. You are the architect of all of this, Rashad. Thank you for joining me, my friend. How do you look at what is happening in this war between Disney and DeSantis? And do you think it could have a chilling effect on other corporations that are thinking about getting engaged in big cultural battles that are affecting a lot of people in this country. Well, you know, Alex, we see corporations doing all sorts of horrific acts, fleecing um, their employees, hurting their consumers, um, polluting, doing all sorts of horrible practices. And here you have DeSantis going after Disney, um, not because they've done anything horrible to the citizens, but because they've actually stood up for a group of citizens and LGBTQ um, Floridians and LGBTQ people around the country. Mm-hmm. And so to the extent that corporations can't pretend like 
and hide here. Yeah. You know, they can't have it both ways. They either have to stand up and push back or they're still going to sort of be held accountable. They're going to be held accountable by a public that's going to expect them to live up to their values. They can't make statements that say black lives matter or that they stand up for the LGBT community. They can't show up to pride parades or do Black History Month celebrations and then continue to support policies and practices that put our communities in harm's way. And so the consumers will hold them accountable. And so, you know, I think it's important that Disney is doing this work, but we can't make corporations the hero in this story. Mm -hmm. We have to hold elected officials accountable for the rules and the regulations. And we have to do sort of more work um, at helping the public really understand the role that corporations have um, in not just in politics, but in sort of all the ways our public life rolls out. But I guess I just wonder, I mean, how possible is that going to be given the zeal of Republican governors and Republican state lawmakers to preemptively basically outlaw an engagement in the political arena on the part of of corporations or investment uh, institutions. You know what I mean? They're just the, the preemptive strike is don't you even think about these progressive goals. Don't you even think about institutional investments that target diversity and environmental and social goals. Don't even think about it. Like preemptively shut down the debate before it even happens. Well, this is actually going to be the test for corporations around exactly do their words actually match their Mm -hmm. actions. Because the Republicans wouldn't be in office without their corporate enablers. And so corporations will say that they support our issues, they will stand up with us, and then they will still give their donations. They will still give their money to support these same politicians who are passing these laws. And so the question is not what they do with their statements. The question is what they do with their dollars. Mm. And they could cut all of this off and stop all of this if they turn off the spigot and they turn off the dollars and they start actually holding these politicians accountable in a very different way. Right now, we get a lot of statements when um, the corporations were speaking out against the attacks on voting rights. Yeah. And um, we, we saw sort of a lot of these companies standing up and speaking out. The question really wasn't, you know, what does your statement say? What does your statement say after January 6th? The question is, where do your dollars go after January 6th? Which candidates are you supporting? Which candidates are you supporting? How long do you withhold your dollars? Do you withhold them for three months, six months, or do you withhold them long enough for it to actually matter? These Republican officials are taking these actions because they are making a bet that the politicians will come back around and continue to support them, that they will not withhold their resources that they um, will just make these statements and that they're not truly with us. And for us in the public, we have to be vigilant in making sure that we are both doing the accountability Mm -hmm. and we are also doing the work um, around withholding our dollars where necessary. Uh, When you talk about withholding dollars, I want to look at the example of Tucker Carlson, because you guys were very engaged in this effort to strip advertiser dollars from his show, which was successful, right? I mean, by and large, the main advertiser during that hour was Mike Lindell, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you did not have, I mean, I think Disney, San Papa John's, T-Mobile, th- there were all these corporations that used to advertise on Fox Air waves and stopped because the content got so vulgar and um, demeaning and in other ways um, filled with disinformation and outright lies. And yet Tucker Carlson was the 
marquee talent at the network. He was getting a salary of reportedly over $20 million and was seen as a raging success. So square for me the utility of stripping the advertiser dollars if the person who is the sort of uh, snake charmer, if you will, in all of this, the person who is the Pied Piper, retains his 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 bully pulpit. Well, this is an important part about strategy here, especially when it comes to Fox News. We've run a number of campaigns against Fox News. We went after the Glenn Beck show famously years ago and forced over 200 advertisers to divest. We went to the, Glenn o, the, um, the Bill O'Reilly show. And so those were advertiser campaigns when the business model was different at Fox. But the business model over the years has slowly changed. And so Fox actually doesn't need advertisers. In fact, about 90 percent of their resources um, happen through cable subscriptions. And what ends up happening, right, is they negotiate a much higher sort of Fee, carriage fees. Carriage fees. And so what ends up happening is they're getting twice as much, basically, as this network and other networks, competitors. And so basically all of us as consumers, whether we watch Fox or not, are subsidizing Tucker Carlson. And so the question is for table, for cable providers is that we should no longer allow them to continue to sort of, um, allow Fox to have these high rates. And we are running a campaign right now to actually focus on that, to focus on the sort of Verizons and AT&Ts of the world, the, the cable providers that are actually um, paying the money, paying the money because we are all subsidizing Tucker Carlson. We are subsidizing those lies. We are subsidizing the other folks on that networks and it's not the advertisers. And so I could run an advertiser campaign with my team. We could get all these advertisers divest and Fox could keep doing what it's, it's doing. doing. And so corporate accountability is also about strategy. And so part of the strategy here is focusing our energy at the right places so we get the right results. I knew you would have an answer for that, Rashad. You're always one step ahead of the game. It's great to see you, my friend. Rashad Robinson from Color Change. We will be right back. That's our show for tonight. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today.